have a Bible, now would be a great time to open it to the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And this is part two of a message I preached two weeks ago, so I will try to establish the context before we go any further. Just a quick word about my clothing and condition. I have never preached in clothing like this in my entire life. And the reason why I have it on is I can't get any long pants over this brace, okay? I'm justifying myself here. I don't like doing that. And I'm not in pain. I feel really good. Thank you for all your prayers, encouragement, cards, and support. They have been wonderful to me. Um, I have to wear this brace for six weeks, so get used to it. It'll be four, four more Sundays. I have to keep my legs straight so that it won't bend while standing or walking. Uh, so I'm good. I'm in no pain. I'm not hurting. I, I feel as good as I can. And so I wanted to get that out of the way because some of you might be curious and miss the whole point of the sermon. <laughs> and we don't want that. Okay? So now, with that said and out of the way, Let's look at Romans chapter 3 and begin reading at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we approach this text today, we pray that you will do surgery on our hearts today. By your Spirit, you will speak to us. You will expose us in ways that we need to come to ourselves and repent and remove our trust from ourselves to Christ. We pray that your spirit who indwells us will give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are saying to your church today. And we pray that above all, our Lord Jesus would be glorified, that we will decrease as we see him increase in our lives. And this we pray 
In Christ's name, amen. Now, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is not flattering toward fallen human nature. It is not. It is the great white hot light of exposure. When we read the Bible, and we, even when we look at characters in the Bible, everybody's flawed, deeply flawed. Uh, the Bible doesn't airbrush. Uh, it doesn't backlight. Uh, it doesn't uh, give us a Botox makeover. It doesn't remove fat from places we don't want it and put it where we do. The Bible is God's Word. And that as God's word, it is light to us, and it is light that exposes us, and it shows us who we are apart from the grace of God. You know, you're never really ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, until you see your need of it, until you see the desperate condition we are in before we look outside of ourselves and trust in Christ. And so Paul here has been spending his time since chapter 1, verse 18, showing us the wickedness and unrighteousness and ungodliness of our hearts apart from Jesus Christ. I often say this, and people look at me like I'm crazy. If you're not the worst sinner you know, you're not really, really getting it yet. You don't really understand the gospel yet. You, you don't really understand what it means to walk in repentance as a lifestyle. And for some of this, this takes years. But you see, the gospel is the anesthetic, the spiritual anesthetic of the soul that gives us the courage to be able to look at ourselves the way we really are before the face of God. And so the scriptures and the law of God in particular, which we'll talk about later, the purpose of the law of God is to expose us. It is to show us our desperate condition. And there's no way out of this, and there's no hope for anyone outside of this than what Paul will mention later in Romans chapter 3. We will touch on it today. But this is not happy stuff. This is stuff that shows us our utter inability to change ourselves, our utter, utter inability to do something good without bad motives, our utter inability to worship God rather than to try to use him to get a better life. And that is our natural condition. And sometimes we baptize our natural condition and think it's better. But what I have discovered in the Christian life is I've been one now for well over 50 years, and what I'm beginning to see is I think a lot less of myself now than when I started. I remember J. Gresham Machen, a great Presbyterian theologian of the last century, said this. On his deathbed, he said, Thank God for the imputed righteousness of Christ. Here's a man that served God all his life. And on his deathbed, he realized the only thing he had that would guarantee him a place in heaven was not a validating performance record of his own, but rather the validating performance record of Christ for him that God credited to his account. 
that when God looked at him, he saw him through the lenses of the righteousness of Christ. And that is what every single person in this building craves and wants. We just don't know it. But Paul is doing this procedure, and here's what he's saying. He starts in verse 9, he says, Are we any better? Well, who are the we any better? The Jews. The people God had chosen, the people God had set apart to belong to him, the people who had received the oracles of God. God had set them apart to be his. And he said, are we any better than they? Who are the they? Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the pagans. And the answer to that question is not at all. You see, you can be an elder brother. You can be a guy that does everything right. You can be a responsible citizen. You can be a conservative. You can even believe the Bible and still be lost and cut off from the gospel of God. Chapters 1, verses um, 18 to 32 speak of the prodigal son whose life was chaos and ruined and riotous living. And in chapter uh, 2 up until chapter 3, verse 10, Paul has indicted the Jewish people, the elder brothers of the faith, for their lack of saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. They had rejected the Savior. And so Paul is taking everyone to task for our position, and he does this out of love. This is not some guy on the side of the road or downtown somewhere with a megaphone preaching and telling people, you know, hell is coming, judgment is coming, turn around and repent. This is a man who loves this church, who loves people, who loves the Jewish people of God, who was a major pharisaical uh, righteousness-pursuing Jew himself. Paul's heart is broken for these people, but he's telling them, this is ugly, this is real, this is who you are. And you're in a mess. You're in a hot mess, a really hot mess. And so what I want us to do today is to look at three particular things from this text. And to do so, uh, first, I want us to look at what is called the fear of the Lord. Notice in verse 18 that Paul says there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God of God before their eyes. The reason why wickedness exponentially increases is there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Everybody sort of has a definition of it. We know from Scripture that when you get to verse 18, Paul can sum up everything he has said in chapter 3 that... He has said that sin makes us misunderstand and run from God to willfully control our own lives so that even our good deeds are just ways of running away from and hiding from God. As a result, truth and love do not control our tongues, but rather our actions, and the result is a complete disintegration, ruin, and misery in life. Where does all of this come from? It flows from no fear of God. So what is the fear of God that nobody has? What is it? Well, it's interesting. The fear of God is really a core or central concept in the Bible. We are repeatedly told 
that the fear of God is the beginning, the starting place, as it were, of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is seeing life the way God sees it and responding and understanding that the Scriptures are the index of reality and when by the Holy Spirit we're able to see the Scriptures, we grow in wisdom. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning. But what is the fear of the Lord? Glad you asked. It's point number one. So let's get to it. The fear of God. If you're going to understand the fear of God, you should also look at Psalm 134 where the psalmist says uh, he fears God because God forgives sins. This shows that the fear of God does not mean a servile, cringing fear of punishment. It means rather than that an inner attitude of awe and respect and sober, trembling joy before the very greatness of God. Now, one of my favorite contemporary writers in the Christian faith is a man by the name of Michael Reeves. And Michael Reeves has written a book recently called Rejoice and Tremble. Rejoice and Tremble. And he says this about the fear of the Lord, and I found it quite instructive. So let's take a moment to understand this very key point in Paul's development of his thought here. He says the fear of God is quite explicitly a blessing of the new covenant. Speaking of the new covenant, the Lord promised through Jeremiah, listen to this carefully, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them and listen to this next statement. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So at the very least we can say that once a person becomes a member of the new covenant, once he becomes a Christian, God puts the fear of him in us. Now, what is the nature of that fear? What's it like? How do we know whether we have it? Those are good questions to ask. So what is the fear of the Lord that he will put in the hearts of the people under his new covenant? Unlike the devilish fear, we have seen that would drive us away from God. This is a fear that keeps us from drawing back or turning away from him. It is then a sort of spirit of slavery that John Newton wrote of his hymn, Amazing Grace. And so when we look carefully at this concept of the fear of God, um, it is helpful to understand that the living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, and his mercy is everything. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saints' love for and enjoyment of all that God is. It is not because we are afraid of him, but because we delight in him that we fear before him. The heart shall fear and be enlarged, says the prophet. 
The more we fear the Lord, the more we love him, until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Moses commanded Israel in summarizing the law was precisely that God's people should fear and love the Lord their God. Right fear does not stand in tension at all with the love of God. Right fear falls on its face before God, but falls leaning toward the Lord. Let me repeat that. Right fear falls on its face before God and his majesty and his transcendence, but falls leaning toward the Lord. It is not as if love draws near and fear distances, but rather this fear of God uh, is one side of our reaction to God. It is not simply that we love God for his graciousness and fear him for his majesty. That would be a lopsided fear of God. We love him in his holiness and tremble at the marvelousness of his mercy. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all of his grace and glory. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that is appropriate. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living, holy, and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He's not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly, seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. That's what the fear of God is. It is an amazingly potent and powerful, and I'll close with this on the fear of God. The right fear of God, then, is not the minor key, gloomy flip side of proper joy in God. There is no tension between this fear and joy. Rather, this trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of the saint's happiness in God. In other words, the biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of joy that is most fitting for us as believers. Our desire for God and delight in him are not intended to be lukewarm. As our love for God is trembling and wonder-filled love, so our joy in God is, at its purest, a trembling and wonder-filled, yes, fearful joy. For the object of our joy is so overwhelmingly and fearfully wonderful, we are made to rejoice and tremble before God and to love him and enjoy him with an intensity that is fitting for him. And what more befits his infinite magnificence than an enjoyment of him that is more than our frail selves can be bear, which overwhelms us and causes us to tremble. Normally, our joy in God is cold and tarnished. But as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we become even more fearfully happy like our God. That is the fear of God. And that is what God puts in us when he regenerates us, when he draws us to himself, and when he shows us the beauty and glory of who he is, and our hearts are overwhelmed. Uh, I'll even use a, a, a contemporary term of my generation, probably not some of yours. Blown away. You ever been blown away by something? I was thinking about this this morning, and I remembered as a child, 
getting up at Christmas morning, which to me, in my time, was the greatest day of the year, bar none, because I had the old Sears Ro Roebuck Christmas catalog. And every year I would pick something out of that catalog that I wanted, and I would visualize it for months, thinking, I'm going to get this. Uh, I didn't believe in Santa Claus, but I still knew I was going to get it. I was a little older than that. Hope I didn't blow anybody's bubble here. But, or burst it. But I got up that morning, and it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. I was so excited. I was wired. I was like beyond excited. And I walked into the den where all the stuff was set up. My parents set up everything, took all the pieces, put them together. It was a lovely display for any child. And I walked in and I saw it. It was the Alamo. And I love little plastic men. And so you had it all set up and Santa Ana and his men were over here and Alamo was over here. And I walked in and I just started shaking. I mean, I'm just vibrant. I can't stop shaking. I'm so excited. I'm quivering, as it were, in the presence of this gift. And, I, and my dad walks in the room and uh, he said, son, what are you doing up? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Go back to bed. It'll be here when you get up. And I said, I'm just so excited. He said, I know. Go get in the bed. And so I did, and it was there when I got up in the morning. But the point is, that little response of my little six-year-old or seven-year-old heart to the little Christmas gift all set up perfectly, the Alamo, was a, an experience that I think about when I think about fearing God. We fear him because he's so good to us. We shake in his presence at his goodness. Christians, we don't fear his judgment in the sense of a slavish, servile, cringing, get away from here, distant place, but rather we lean toward him because we know that he only intends to do us good. That's what he's about. And so that is the breakthrough. Once a person begins to receive the fear of God that God implants in the heart, then he becomes or she becomes a different person altogether. And this God who used to be abstract, who used to be to us unknown, now becomes more intimate, more approachable to us. He hasn't changed, but we have. And it's a glorious change. Now you need to listen faster if we're going to get through. The second one is the silence before the face of God. So the fear of God is the antidote to everything Paul has said up to this point. And so there's a condition that we come to after reading Romans 3, verses 10 and following, where we cannot save ourselves through our good deeds. We know we can't make up the difference. I know that when I was first a Christian, I thought grace meant that you do the best you can, and then God will make up the difference where you don't measure up. That is so wrong. That's legalism. That's uh, Pharisaism. That's not the gospel. Grace doesn't make up any difference. Grace is the difference. And let me say this. It, with all of the passion of my heart, you cannot add one scintilla, one iota, one yod, Hebrew, one tittle to the grace of God and still have grace. Grace is 100% pure 
It's the heady stuff. It's the vintage wine in the cellar. Grace is the best. But you can't add anything to it and still have it. So there's a condition when we realize that we cannot save ourselves. The way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There's nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification only to one kind of person, and that is the ungodly. That's who God justifies. There's no preparation. There's no improvement of your life before you approach God. You come as you are. He'll never leave you the same, but you come as you are, and that's what the gospel is. Now, nothing now stands between the sinner and God, but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ, but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All you need is need. All they need is nothing. But alas, some sinners can't part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they're real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusory virtues of their own. Their eyes are fixed on a mirage. They will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all around them. John Gerstner again shows that what keeps people from Christ is not their sins, but their imagined value of their virtues and good works. That's what keeps you from Jesus. It is your sin, but not so much your sin, because we all understand we sinned against God. We are in debt to him because of our sin. But what we do not see is what Gerstner calls our damnable good works. And so, when we think about this, I think we're ready for point two, which is the spiritual condition of silence. All the way out through this section of Scripture from 118 to 32, when he's talking about the sinful pagans who deserve and experience God's wrath, Paul has been speaking primarily here to religious people. That is, he is talking to law-keeping, Bible-believing, and righteous people. This is why Paul has quoted the Old Testament Scriptures in his description of the effects of sin in verses 10 through 18. This is what the law... Uh, says people are like and what Paul has shown that people whom it is describing are Jews as well as Gentiles whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law it applies to everyone who knows and seeks to keep the law just as much as those who don't know or don't care about the law so the effect of knowing the law should not be a proud claim that I'm a good law keeper that I stand right with God, its effect should be that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The purpose of the law of God is to shut your mouth. Shut your mouth about what? All the excuses you want to make. I've often said if the Posies, that's my last name, had a family crest, we were never rich enough to have one. But if the Posies had a family crest, the motto of our family would be, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. 
But a person that truly begins to understand the law of God and its ministry toward us is to expose our sin and drive us to Jesus. Expose our sin and drive us to Jesus. Yes, the law of God generally in culture has a measure by which it restrains, although that's fading fast in our culture. But the law of God is designed to, to, for you to see the bankrupt soul that you are and to drive you to the arms of Jesus. That's the purpose of it. And it's also to shut our mouth. This is as close as Paul ever gets to saying shut up. But that's what he's saying. So the effect of knowing the law should silence us. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. Whenever someone reads God's law, however loyal, kind, thoughtful, generous, or loving they are, the response can only be, I am a sinner. I have nothing at all to say to God, no defense to make uh, or offer. I am in desperate trouble. The law of God is a mirror. It's a mirror. Now, I'm sure that at one point today you looked in the mirror, right, before you came to church. There might be some men who didn't, but I'm pretty sure that everybody looked in the mirror. And what do you see? You see an image of yourself reflected back. Now, let's say you looked in the mirror and you saw you had smudges on your face. How would you clean yourself? Would you take your face and rub it against the mirror? No. Unless there's something bad wrong with you, you would not do that. And that's how people who try to save themselves by being a good person, keeping the law, being religious, being biblical, being conservative. This is the way you try to save yourself. You try to get a validating performance record by trying to do the best you can to do what God says. And as noble as that may sound, it's standing in the way of you truly knowing Jesus. It's standing in the way of our truly knowing Christ. And so, there has to be something else. There has to be something else. And so the way to God is wide open. And in the gospel, there is a righteousness from God that is revealed. All we need to do is come to Christ with empty hands and receive his righteousness. But I love a sermon I read from George Whitfield. You know, George Whitfield was a real celebrity in his day. It was said of George Whitfield that by saying the word Mesopotamia, women swooned. So this guy really had a presence. He was a real celebrity in his time, and he preached. But oh, what a preacher. Whitfield says this. He says, before you can be sure that you are at peace with God, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your nature, but likewise for the sins of your best duties and performances. When a poor soul is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then the poor creature being uh, born under the covenant of works flies directly to a covenant of works again. As Adam and Eve had themselves hid themselves among the trees in the garden, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and to his performances to hide himself from God and goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. He will say, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do all I can, and then certainly Jesus will have mercy on me. But before... 
you can know you are at peace with God. You must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you've ever put up. You must be brought to see that all of your duties, all of your righteousness, as the prophet elegantly expresses it, put them all together, are so far from recommending us to God, are so far from being any motive and inducement for God to have mercy on our poor souls, that he will see them as filthy rags, claws used to wipe the pus of leprosy. That's what the prophet said our works of righteousness are. And it's so, so hard for us to believe that. God hates them, and he cannot but say, away with them. If you bring them to him in order to recommend them to his favor, my dear friends, what is there in our performances to recommend us to God? I can say that I cannot pray without sin. I cannot preach without sin. I can do nothing without sin. As one expresses it, my repentance needs to be repented of and my very tears to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. Our best duties are so many splendid sins. Splendid sins. Before you can know you're at peace with God, you must not only be made sick of your original and actual sin, you must be sick of your righteousness and all your duties and all your performances. And I want to tell you something. That righteousness we hang on to is the source of all of our conflict in life. Because I like to be right. I have never liked to be wrong. But I am terribly wrong before the face of God. And so the value of the imputed righteousness of Christ does this for me. It makes me rest for the first time in my life to rest in the arms of Jesus, recognizing that... I am validated. Everybody needs a sense of validation. We all hunger for it in our lives. God made us that way. But the only thing that will validate us is Jesus' covenant keeping on our behalf. He kept the law. He performed the law. He did everything the law required of a person to do, not for himself, but for us to be an unblemished uh, sacrifice upon the cross, but also for us because we cannot keep it. Even as a Christian, we cannot keep it. Lose that thought. We cannot. That's why God justifies the ungodly. We'll see that later. But here's the deal. When we begin to understand that we have to learn to be as sick of our righteousness as we are, of our sins, sick of our duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness, which is the last idol taken out of your heart. You see what self-righteousness is, is trying to establish a validating performance record for myself. And I may do it in a thousand different ways. I may do it as trying to be a father. I may do it as, as a career. I may do it in darker things seeking to validate myself because I'm needy and I want somebody outside of me to tell me I'm okay. I don't know how many of you know about that book on transactional analysis. You'd have to be old like me. But there was a book one time released called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Same author later wrote a book, I'm Okay, You're Not Okay. <laughs> My answer to it all is you're not okay and I'm not okay. And the only thing at the end of the day that makes me okay 
is Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. That's my victory. That's my glorious death. And so, there are a great many who say, we believe all this, but there's a great difference between talking and feeling. Did you ever feel the need of a dear Redeemer? Did you ever feel the want of Jesus Christ upon the account of the deficiencies of your own righteousness? And now can you say from your heart, Lord, you may justly damn me for the best duties I ever did perform. If you are not thus brought out of yourself, you say to your own heart, peace, peace, but there is no peace. With furious logic, Whitfield shows us that if you think your good deeds have any intrinsic merit in them, you will use Jesus to help you save yourself, but you will not treat him as your only Savior. A Pharisee tries to be good. A Pharisee, however, exposes himself or herself. And by the way, I'm a recovering Pharisee. I go to meetings every week. No, I don't, but I should. But a Pharisee never repents. Pharisees at church here this Sunday comes by to greet the pastor at the door and puts on his best holy appearance and face. And I ask the Pharisee, what are you repenting of? And you know what? He has nothing to say. Why? Because he's not doing anything wrong. Lord, deliver us. Open our eyes. Open our eyes. Holy Spirit, fall on us. Show us the beauty and glory and suitedness of Jesus Christ for our souls. So, next week, we will pick up on the next couple of verses, 19 and 20, which I did not touch too much today. But who's in a hurry? This is good stuff. This is the Word of God. But let me encourage you today. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand alone, alone in him, our righteousness complete. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the gospel. It truly is good news. Set against the black backdrop of our chaotic ugliness and desperate need and I pray today that your spirit would do his work of putting the fear of God in us and that we may be given eyes to see the beauty and glory and suitability and acceptability of Jesus Christ for our souls now as we give may we give as people who are grateful that we have been rescued I mean rescued from the worst possible danger. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.